0: The but- welcome back to all new all different uncanny x's for podcast the show where we take a look at the uncanny x-men comic book franchise as it continues its 1980s dominance of the market i'm your host nico and i'm kevo and we hope you guys survive the experience because today's experience is a time travel experience in order to properly talk about excalibur you have to talk about captain britain and you really can't talk about captain britain without talking about his landmark run by alan moore and alan davis of course that was not the first time alan moore and alan davis worked together on an unbelievable super being from the uk story goes back even further though than the 1980s revitalization by alan moore we can't just start at miracle man we have to go back to 1953 and marvel man by mick angelo
1: oh we do do we
0: yeah this one is a little bit tough to read we're going to be taking a look at the marvel man family primer as well as marvel man family's finest one through three these were the first four issues released by marvel after they acquired the rights to miracle man slash marvel man well kind of they might have the rights, they're really not sure. This has been quite a fun adventure. Of course, you can't really talk about Marvel Man without discussing legalities and rights from the beginning. In the early 50s, fawcett Comics had been publishing reprints of DC's Captain Marvel. They were stopped by a lawsuit and instead came up with their own version of the character. They replaced Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel, and Captain Marvel Jr. with Miracle Man, Young Miracle Man, and Kid Miracle Man. Although at the time, they were Marvel Man. Men. Marvel miracles. This is gonna get tricky, over and over again. Yeah. These stories were published from 1953 to 1959 and saw almost 350 solo issues for each of the Marvel Mans alone, as well as annuals and 30 issues of a family tie-in series. These guys were super successful. Instead of saying Shazam, they spoke the word atomic, Kematoa backward to transform although the younger Marvel Men stated Marvel Man to transform. I mean just hope you don't accidentally say it in polite conversation, I guess. How often does that word Come up at parties. Well, I imagine when he's your local superhero, a lot. Meh. The bizarre story of Marvel Man and Miracle Man. It all kind of comes down to how people buy up the rights to companies after the fact. When Dez Skin, who had been working on the Captain Britain stories we read, the recent Black Knight adventure, decided he wanted to relaunch an anthology title in the UK, he knew that it was going to include Marvel Man. Now he'd initially talked to two of the writers we dealt with in those Cap. In Britain Black Knight episodes who had no interest. One of them suggested Alan Moore and he wrote his dark deconstructionist reimagining of the series, a number of which of those stories were published in Warrior. Later on, Marvel Comics would object to the use of Marvel Man, as had DC in the past because they were trying to keep Captain Marvel for themselves, and the ongoing battle eventually led to Alan Moore leaving after 16 issues and Neil Gaiman coming on to take over with artist Mark Buckingham. Their role, run would be cut short although they have always hoped to be able to finish it things get a little bit more confusing when at one point neil gaiman was under the impression that he had possibly purchased the rights in 1996 todd McFarlane believed he had purchased the rights to the point where todd McFarlane was going to include miracle man in his material appearing in a title called hellspawn while he did have the alter ego of miracle man appear the actual miracle man did not appear in the series. He became known as the Man of Miracles and shapeshifted and all sorts of things to try and get out of something he was legally not allowed to own. However, it's important to note that Neil Gaiman never gave up on this series. Neil Gaiman became actively engaged in trying to secure legal rights to comic book series for the creators, and as such, he created Marvels and Miracles LLC, which the goal was to clear up the Miracle Man Marvel Man ownership issues. Gaiman wrote 1602 using the Prophets to help Marvel create a world where Miracle Man could be published again. As a matter of fact, Gaiman's dedication for 1602 in the Collected Editions states to Todd for making it necessary. (laughs) Now, one of the things that is so fascinating is the Todd McFarlane-Neil Gaiman legal battle becomes incredibly complex, in which Neil Gaiman claims that Todd McFarlane said that he would own the rights to the elements he created in Spawn. Todd McFarlane denies this, and Neil Gaiman took him to court multiple times. Neil won just about every time, and ultimately, Todd McFarlane had to surrender the rights to one of his most significant and recognizable characters, Angela, as well as huge elements of the Spawn mythology. Neil Gaiman would later take Angela over to Marvel. But in the course of all of this, in all of this messiness, it turned out that Michelangelo, the original creator, still had the rights somehow, and no one knew? So, Marvel, in a stunning show of dedication to to creator rights purchased the rights from mcangelo hooray they hoped to begin publishing regular miracle man stories starting in 2010 but there has been an unending amount of problems getting in the way leading to ultimately neil gaiman and mark buckingham's miracle man the silver age not yet being able to see the light of day while two issues did see publication in the 90s at eclipse comics they are long since gone and this is turning into quite a project recently, Marvel brought Miracle Man back in a humongous way with a one-page appearance in Marvel 1000, as well as a second printing variant seeing the character on the cover. Since 2010, Marvel has released six issues of Marvel Man Family's Finest, the Marvel Man Primer, the 16-issue run by Alan Moore, featuring beautiful recoloring and some amount of restructuring to include every piece of side canon they could, as well as reprinting Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham's first arc, Miracle man the golden age they've also printed a number of hardcovers, including a few that had the original material in newsprint black and white classic absolutely it had a really cool vibe to it it was a lot of fun So if you're asking me what makes Marvel Man or Miracle Man so legendary, I'm going to have to go with the characters and what they represent more than the stories per se. Whether it's Mickey Moran, who is Miracle Man, Johnny Bates, who is Kid Miracle Man, or my favorite, Dickie Dauntless, Young Miracle Man. These characters have a very strong moral code, even if they are occasionally corrupted by the anachronism of morality in the 50s. So it's Mickey, Dickie, and Johnny? Oh, God. Hey, you never heard it before, did you? No, no, that's pretty rough. That's pretty rough. And it's also of note that they wear yellow, blue, and red, and so they kind of represent the three primary colors, and they're the primary heroes, and there's a lot of very basic childlike symbolism to these characters in a way that fits the era. Think about how Superman flew around with a fucking giant S on his chest. What does the S stand for? It stands for sales. Leave the extra S off for sleep. The heroes here, much like just about any super being in the at the time, have nearly limitless abilities. They're incredibly strong, telepathic. They have energy blasts. They can heal. They can take a punch. These are standard super god superheroes. And so, of course, it makes sense why one day Alan Moore would want to take them apart and make you feel sick every time you look at them. That's, you know. It's what he do. It's what he does the best. The villains are also uh, something to behold. Oh, my God. Whether it's the brilliantly named Young Nasty Man (laughs) or the evil doctor. Dr. Emil Gargunza. These villains feel like they would have trouble confounding the cast of Hogan's heroes. Literally, from page
1: one, I felt that Gargunza is one of the worst villains I have ever read in my
0: life. Starting right away with Marvel Man's Family's Finest, we see a selection of stories covering all aspects of the Marvel Man family. We read Marvel Man 222 from November 16th, 1957, Young Marvel Man 57 from September 18th, 1954 Kid Marvel Man 102 from July 30th 1955 and Marvel Man Family Number 3 from February 1957 so we're just all over the place in time okay yeah these Family's Finest story collections were not about telling the most chronologically linear version of things but rather highlight the elements that would become important to the story later on thanks to the magic of hindsight okay the artwork itself can be very comic strippy maybe be a little kind of almost Fallouty. It kind of looks like the fallout style of art or uh, Tintin. Yeah. It's in some places very simplistic and these adventures are something else. Whether it's putting a hole in a planet with acid Ugh. or stealing a word out of someone's mouth, these are an unusual number of stories. Or the land of the king of the vegetables. Full stop. That's, that's a thing. That's all I need to say about it. I don't question... What What you're saying. These are some very difficult stories at times. So I want to highlight how ridiculous these stories can be. Now, I actually think Young Nasty Man might be the best thing about this series by far. He is a disturbed youth named Pontag who doesn't want to do anything. He just wants to sit around and be sour. And all of the guys on his planet of Adonises want him to play with them, and he doesn't want to. Meh. So he finds an old hermit who gives him an evil potion and transforms him into young nasty
1: man the nastiest boy in the universe and I've just heard so many twinks say that
0: absolutely and like his powers are just you know sort of generic super being but he immediately is like ah I don't mind doing stuff now kicking ass is fun and it says how he
1: goes on a rampage until one day he finds out about young Marvel man which implies that this is a multi-day rampage that he's going on that's what he immediately does with his little nasty man powers.
0: We're not looking at incredibly researched and developed ideas right now. These were just meant to be a couple of pages to entertain kids. And Mick Angelo did the best he could, shaping a world of superheroes to fill people with excitement. Now, this was the 50s, so there were also a number of elements that are unique to their time. Marvel Man's Family's Finest Number 2 features stories like Marvel Man and the Shadow of the Swastika from Marvel Man 228, and Kid Marvel Man and the Wild, Wild Man of Borneo from Marvel Man 105 Ugh. That one could have
1: ended up being so much worse than it was, though. The title alone had me very afraid.
0: Honestly, I was not too happy with the outcome in general, but I do agree it could have been way more xenophobic and racist. The Shadow of the Swastika story fits that era very well. Frequently comics from the 1950s, 60s, and even 70s. Hey, we're seeing it again today. The, the looming threat of Nazism absolutely chills many people to the bone. And in Europe, not even 20 years since all of that madness, it's powerful.
1: It opens with Marvel Man talking directly to the camera saying, Now folks, I know it's been 13 years since the war ended, and an unexpected headline for 1958 is Marvel Man wipes out Nazi evil. And it's like, no, that's that's not
0: an uncommon headline, Marvel Man. We're sorry. Speaking of not uncommon headlines, these Marvel Man's family's finest give such a uniquely specific view of the Marvel Family Universe, Family's Finest number three sees the third Young Marvel Man reprint in a row to feature Young Nasty Man. In fact, it's even called
1: Young Nasty Man again, dot dot dot, as though even the title itself is aware of. He just keeps coming back, doesn't he? Little Nasty Man.
0: And it's things like Young Nasty Man has a suit that perfectly mirrors Young Miracle Man down to having letters on his shirt. Like, in space, YN still means Young Nasty Man. It's So, oh
1: god. There's even a portion where he's carrying a little flag around with him that says YN on it, and young Marvel Man has a YM flag to put over the YN flag. Like, you guys just carry these things around with you? I guess I carry my own merchandise sometimes. That's fair.
0: But you're also not going around being a super terrorist, so that's a factor that you probably want to keep in mind. This is true. I found myself constantly unsure of why these stories were picked. Marvel Man 2.22 Two, Marvel Man 228, and 252, as the first three Marvel Man solo stories to be included, each in Family's Finest 1, 2, and 3, respectively, see him face off against the dumb Garganza with some big science idea. In the first story, they put acid vapor and bore a hole in a planet. The second story is, of course, The Shadow of the Swastika, which doesn't feature Garganza, but it's one of the only actual threats that I feel Marvel Man faced in these issues. And then the third story was okay, Gargunza okay, okay. Okay, I need to talk about this Gargunza coal story for a second. Gargunza reads that a coal magnate left a million dollars when he died, so Gargunza decides that coal is the only way to strike it rich now, and the way he's going to do it is he's going to get coal from space. Well,
1: his coal locator device turns upside down by accident and starts going off, and that's when Gargunza realizes that there must be coal in space, so let me go exploring planets to find coal, because the coal locator would go off that powerfully, locating coal in space before on Earth. And let's just talk about the fact that Gargunza has a space rocket that has, according to Marvelman, a million mile radius that he would need to check and see where Gargunza is in space. He can afford fucking this, but he's worried about getting a million dollars.
0: What? Logic wasn't a humongous element of these stories the way a general sense of right is. And I feel like that's best exemplified by the stories they chose for Kid Miracle Man. The stories they chose for Johnny vary from adorable to ridiculous. While a lot of them involve mostly Kid Marvel Man transforming and, like, threatening people, there's actually some good in this. While The Wild Man of Borneo is deeply uncomfortable, it's notable that Johnny immediately after seeing a man in a cage says, I don't believe men belong in cages.
1: Yeah, that was a pretty cool thing to put in there
0: especially considering the era. Although that first story where a guy is just like boys will be boys. No that phrase needs to come out of everyone's vernacular. Yes I agree. It's hard to talk about the selections they chose for Young Marvel Man because Young Marvel Man is so underdeveloped in these stories. There is a significant amount of emphasis put on Young Nasty Man whereas Young Marvel Man kind of just fades into the background in his own tales. I
1: think because we've only seen him fight one villain in his solo tales it's hard to get a sense of him outside of this young nasty man antagonist
0: a lot of the best things about marvel man and a lot of the worst things about marvel man can be found in those three marvel man family stories while we've already touched on it for about a second that king of the vegetable people story is fucking nuts yes yes it is it's like some sort of bizarre oz nightmare come to life And it's unbelievable because so many parts of this, I'm sort of like, shrug, do people really care about this? But you know what? Mickey Moran works for the Daily Bugle. No, it's not that Daily Bugle, but it's the Daily Bugle. And I can't help but notice that so many of the things in Marvel Man find their way into things like fables. The King of the Vegetable People echoes a number of things that Merv Pumpkinhead does.
1: Also, I was just utterly baffled by young Marvel Man's suggestion that they simply dump the plants into the sea. Seriously?
0: That's his plan. If I was grateful for one thing about the first Marvel Man family story that I found to be a problem with the others, it's that I could at least find room for the three Marvel Men in that first story. But the second and third Marvel Man family tales from the first handful of finest issues, they exemplify why this family is way too powerful to be in one title. I don't know how they have room for one Marvel Man, let alone three running around some of these adventures, especially when any one Marvel Man is as strong as Pontag and even the child is smarter than Gargunza. But I will say they aren't even able to solve the problem
1: on their own in the second Marvel Man family issue and they have to instead call in Bloodhounds, which just makes... Absolutely as much sense as the coal locator finding coal in outer space. Space coal, big coal. Space.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Taryn, and this is Artists of the Atom Costume Corner. I'm back at you with some costume history on one of the brainiest members of the X-Men, Hank McCoy, aka the Beast. Hank's appearance was not always blue and fuzzy, and he was quite the talker when it came to reasoning as well as having some smart wit. Considering how ironic of a life Hank had been handed, we're going to take it back and examine how he went from an agile genius to one of the most recognizable brutish mutants we know of today. With the introduction of the X-Men in Uncanny X-Men No. 1, Lee and Kirby depicted Beast as a mild-mannered man with a wrestler's build complete with oversized hands and feet to make him really stand out. He wore the same yellow and blue suit to match the team identity, but his hands and feet were exposed to emphasize what his mutant abilities were. Hank was very strong, super agile, and able to climb and grasp onto walls, so any gloves or boots would prevent him from performing at his best. Apart from his oversized limbs, nothing really stood out that defined him as beastly unless you also want to count his hairy arms and legs. Along with the other X-Men in Uncanny issue number 39, Beast's costume redesign was fairly similar to what it had been to the original suit, only it was red and bluish black rather than blue and yellow. To me, this costume design works to contrast with the other members of the X-Men, especially since most of them have some accessory that accentuates their abilities, so Beast has to stand out in some manner. In some ways, this costume design reminds me of a luchador with its primary color tones and the full head mask. It won't be until the Beast decides to leave the X-Men that we see him in a totally different light. In Amazing Adventures number 11, Beast kicks off into his own solo run and begins his journey as a furry mutant. Penciled by Tom Sutton, we get a glimpse of the beginnings of Beast's mutation as a gray-haired, wolfman-looking creature in blue briefs. The story written by Jerry Conway puts Hank in this horror flick scenario of good scientist turns into science monster. Hank created a mutagen serum that could give anyone mutant abilities, but when he catches word that someone within his workplace aims to steal the serum, he uses it on himself in an attempt to come off as a new hero and not blowing his cover as a former X-Man. While trying to nab the crook, Hank winds up staying in his Beast form for too long, and slowly he begins to lose his humanity as he instinctively lashes out. The concept was brought about by editor Roy Thomas in an attempt to make Beast a more visually striking character. It worked out well, considering that despite his terrifying monster-like appearance, Beast has become a well-known and appraised character of the X-Men universe. As an add-in to his costume theme, and one which most people probably wouldn't really consider, I'll throw in there that Beast had to make his own costume during his run of Amazing Adventures in order to blend in with his fellow scientists at the Brand Corporation, which is where he worked and initially created the Mutagen. Hank created his human persona by making a rubber mask of his likeness and a pair of hands, and he went through physical stress to restrain his body into an upright position using a bodysuit comprised of straps and harnesses. In a real world, this would be like a gorilla wearing a human suit and would most definitely not pass, but it works out in Hank's favor just fine. Later on in the series, after awakening from sustaining injuries during a fight, Beast finds himself a shade of black, or, more like, blue. Probably, in an attempt to aid the artist from drawing so many hairy lines and having a uniquely uniformed approach to his design, Beast is enveloped in black with blue highlights, and he's still just wearing the blue briefs. It will be from here on out that Beast will be in his most recognizable design, and with the improvement of colorization in comics, his unique blueness will stick. In short, I appreciate the depths they took in the artistic development of Hank as Beast. The need to have a more captivating X-Men mutant on the team created a rather ironic situation for Hank, as he turns his scientific discovery onto himself and into a furry blue monster. While I still appreciate the fact that Hank was created at the start with enhanced limbs to accentuate his physical abilities, the manner of changing his whole human appearance to beast mode aids in his character development. The first comic appearance of Hank as Beast was a bit surprising because I'm so used to seeing him wearing his spectacles and reading books in his lab. More or less a big docile monster creature rather than what I saw in Amazing Adventures number 11. The pictures I found from that comic issue were Uh, kind of startling and borderline grotesque as Beast jumps around the pages with a wild-eyed, fang-filled, snarly mess of a face. Overall, he was not terribly flattering. He gets a little bit easier on the eyes as his time in X-Men comics progresses, which will be discussed later on. To sum it up, we only get one forgetful costume change as his time as Harry Hank McCoy before he blues himself into Beast. And from this point, we will see how his character arc will influence his appearances later on in X-Men history. Until next time, you can find me on my social media pages like Twitter and Instagram under the handle at Taryn Enigma Art. That's T-A-R-Y-N-E-N-I-G-M-A underscore art. And be sure to catch up on Kid Riot at KidRiotComics.com where you can see all my art on the title series, Kid Riot.
0: did you have any other thoughts about these first three issues?
1: It was a lot. It, it was a lot. The only other thing that really jumped out at me was the raw meat release button on Gargunza's submarine for his plan of sinking Pacific City, which took him 20 years. And his plan was just sink it, drive his submarine in, and rob some places. Again, he can afford to sink a city, but he's got to rob a jewelry store and a bank. I just don't understand this character.
0: And I think it's because not enough thought was put into developing the characters to understand them. I will be honest, I find myself enchanted by these stories. I I know the quality can be a little rough, and I know the level of complexity applied is occasionally thinner than we would like. But honestly, I think they're charming. There's something magical about them. And it's nice to read a Superman that's not Superman. Not that I am necessarily anti-Clark Kent. But that's a story I've heard, and that's a character I recognize. These three characters... There's something very different. I will say, I very much noticed that there is nary a female character in the entire fucking thing. Yeah, yeah. While there is a Marvel woman, at some point, that we will be discussing, this first slice of the Marvel family doesn't necessarily feel like the stories I would want people to read to understand these characters. But as someone who's read the Alan Moore run, I can say these stories were chosen with specificity. The narrative they're crafting is birthed from these stories. Whether or not they are the best examples of the character and its line or these merely highlight some of the tropes that Alan Moore will play against. You know, it's it's a tough choice. Do you put the emphasis on reprinting the original work in a way that puts the best light on the original work or do you reprint it in the way that best reflects what came later? It's a tricky, tricky game to play and it's one that I'm really excited to take a look at as we go forward. We're going to be taking a look at the other half of Family's Finest next time before diving in to the four books of the Miracle Man run that have been re-released. Hopefully, by the time we're done with this, there'll be a little bit more news on Miracle Man, The Silver Age, which Marvel keeps hinting may be coming out any day now. Kevo, before we wrap up, did you have any thoughts about the Marvel family and what it was like to step into 1950s comics for the first time? In a word, yikes. And in another word, Kimatoa. And until we are back to Marvel at the Miracle of Marvel Man, where can everybody find you online? You can
1: find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevoreally, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on our other show, Husbands Talking More or Less, as well as the internet Facebook page for that program. And you can find all of the super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero work that we do over with the Kid Ride Comics team at
0: KidRideComics.com. Nico, where can the folks find you? You can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend Chris Podcast, where we talk about the Now That's What I Call Music series. You can also find me on another show with this amazing fella, Husbands Talking More or Less, where we are currently taking a deep dive into the Alien franchise and a show called Alien Legacy. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until next time, keep believing in miracles. Bye!